The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be reading together uh, to lead up to our text. We'll be reading together from Luke chapter 6, the verses 6 to 11. And then the text, the focus for this morning will be the verses 12 to 19. Now at this point, Jesus has been traveling through the countryside of Galilee. And that's in the uh, a little bit north of Judea. It's near a province that's near the Sea of Galilee. So the, the northern end of where the Jews make their home. And he's been uh, teaching in the synagogues, going from place to place. At this point in time, the synagogues had not yet been closed to him. And he's also been teaching in the open areas. He's been calling different people to follow him. But it's at this point that the opposition that he faces becomes more serious. And then at the beginning of our text, he begins in prayer. And it's with the psalm in mind as well that we think about the prayer of Jesus Christ, the psalm that we sang. So let's begin looking at verses 6 to 11. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do evil, to save life, or to destroy. And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Here we come to our text. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Simon called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed." And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, things look pretty grim for Jesus at this point in time. He's touched the Pharisees right where it hurts them the most. He's laid his finger on the sin that is most dear to them their legalistic attitude towards the law. 
their willingness to hold on to a law to such an extent that they would let others go hungry and that they would let others continue in suffering in order to uphold the traditions that they had added to the law to expand on the law. And that's left them in a pretty dark place. We read in the, verses that, in the verse that's immediately preceding our passage, it says, they were filled with rage and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. There are two responses that come when someone touches down on your sin. And one of them is a genuine repentance, genuine humbling of yourself before the Lord, asking for forgiveness. But there's another response as well. And this is a hardening of heart, an anger that rises up, self-righteousness. And this is the response that you can see in the Pharisees. The Pharisees had Jesus challenged them on their sin and their response was rage. And for Luke, the author of this gospel, it's this point that marks the beginning of their official opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees had spoken against him before, but in earlier times they had just come against him as individuals. Now, for the first time, they begin to move against Jesus in an organized fashion. They're discussing with one another how they might bring him down. We read that. They were filled with rage and they discussed with one another. They are organizing. The danger has become real. So, how does Jesus respond? How would you respond to opposition? That's rising up to people that are filled with rage against you. There is a large group that's now gathered around Jesus to listen to him. And we can see that it's not just people from the immediate area. It's not just people from Galilee. But if you look at verse 17, it's people, a multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. That's a good ways south. And from all the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, that's a good ways north, right into Gentile territory, this group that has come down to follow him and listen to him. And many of them are vulnerable people who don't have any protection. And the ones who are meant to be their leaders, and who are meant to be their guides are now going the wrong way. They are hardening their hearts in sin. What to do? We'll see this under the theme of Christ's response to opposition, and we'll see, first of all, it's a response marked by prayer, second, choosing leadership, and third, delivering people from oppression. Our Lord Jesus Christ begins his response to this opposition with prayer. Now I want you to notice something here. This is the seventh time that Luke mentions prayer, and it's the third time that this gospel mentions Jesus in prayer. The time before this, I talked about his habit of withdrawing into the wilderness to get away from people. Just get away for a while and pray. The time before that was at his baptism. 
Now, if you were to look at this passage alone, you might get the idea that Jesus only prays at, at the big moments in his life. That prayer is something exceptional to Jesus. But that's actually not the case. Yes, this is an exceptional time, but it's not just that Jesus only prayed at exceptional times. It was his habit to pray. And he taught his disciples how to make prayer a normal part of their lives. But Luke does speak about how in these special moments, Jesus was especially earnest in prayer. And in this case, with the rise of opposition, we see him praying all night. This is the only time in the New Testament that we find this word. It's a Greek word that describes an all-night prayer vigil. And it shows how serious this was to Jesus. Now, if you look For a moment at the end of verse 12, you read how he continued all night in prayer to God. Another way that this could be translated more literally is in prayer that's given to God. And we can see here the heart with which Jesus approaches his heavenly Father. Prayer for him isn't a magical formula. We we live in a, a world in which we do something and we expect results and on the business side of things, if, if we pay money, if we give something, we expect something in return and we expect it quickly and we expect it done well. And this same attitude can sometimes show itself in the way that we come to God in prayer. We can think, if I pray hard enough or say the right words, God might give me my request. But that's not the way that Christ approaches his heavenly Father in prayer. He doesn't treat it like a magical wish, not like an order at a restaurant expecting results from an eternal divine waiter. But it's a child who's speaking to his father. He's giving it all over to his father who has all things in his hand. Now Jesus knows where this conflict that's arising between him and the Pharisees is headed. These are the first rumblings of a group of people opposing him who will eventually bring him to the cross. This opposition isn't going to go away. In fact, it's an opposition that's only going to increase. And so, he chooses to pray, both for his work and for the many vulnerable people who are looking to him. This too should be our attitudes in coming to the Father in prayer, beloved, as we pray for those who are in care, who are dependent on on us and for the work that we are doing in God's kingdom and to his glory. And as we pray for our own needs as well, especially in times of difficulty, not ordering but giving over our concerns to the one who can change things. Coming to our Father in these times to speak to him as a child to a father. You might be thinking at this moment in time that, well, yeah, but that was Jesus. Who am I to come to the Father in the same way that Jesus did? He is God. But we can do this because our Lord Jesus hasn't just modeled this for us. He's cleared the way for us to come to the Father in the very same way. Everyone who calls on him, you 
oldest members of the congregation right down to you boys and girls. Everyone who calls on him in prayer can come to him. You can come to the Father just like Christ did, giving your prayers and your requests humbly to God because Jesus made it possible. Ephesians 2 verses 17 to 18 speaks about how we can come in the same way to Jesus because it says, to, to the Father, because it says, through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And Hebrews 10 verse 19, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Christ models for us that we are children and that we can come to the Father and we can give over all of our needs to him. We can speak to him of our need, but he doesn't just model this and he hasn't just opened the way for us to come to him in the time of need. We see that Jesus goes beyond this as well. He goes to teach and train his people. He knows that there will be a day in which he will no longer be there himself, and so he begins to prepare his people for that time. That's the second point we'll look at today. This is the next portion of this passage. After he spends the night in prayer, an all-night prayer vigil, it says, when it was day, He called to his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostles is from a Greek word that means those who are sent out, like delegates or ambassadors from one country to another, or messengers. These would all fall under the category of apostles. These will be the ones that he will train to be his mouthpieces, to preach the message of the kingdom. A message which he shares with them right after our passage today. In verses 20 and following, it's that message of the kingdom. And the message that they are called to carry with them in Luke chapter 9. These men are his core group. Now it's at this point in time that that you might be wondering, weren't they his disciples already? And it's true. These were men who were called to follow Jesus quite some time ago. Peter, known as Simon in the earlier chapters of the gospel, has been with Jesus for actually quite some time. He hosted Jesus in his home. You can read about that in chapter 4. And Jesus provided him with a miracle of caught fish before calling him to become a fisher of men. And you can see that coming out in chapter 5, verse 11 specifically. Later on, you can see the call of Levi as well. The tax collector named Levi in 5 verse 27, Jesus says, follow me. So if they were already his disciples beforehand, what's going on here? What's happening here? Well, there were more disciples than just the 12. In the book of Acts, we read about the choosing of another disciple from among those who had been followers of Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. Later on in this gospel, Christ calls a rich young man to follow him. And this young man, this particular young man, walks away with sadness instead of following Jesus because he loved his money more than following Christ. 
There were also six dozen other disciples who were later appointed in chapter 10 of this gospel to accompany the apostles in spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. The apostles were not the only 12 to commit themselves to following Jesus. However, these 12 were to be the answer to the prayer of Jesus. The answer in as he prays, he, he always prays for his people, that his father might preserve his people. And these 12 were the ones who were chosen for a special task. In seeing the opposition that was arising, Christ had taken that first step to pray, but now he's taken the next step to train these leaders, these men, for the spiritual battle that is coming. Men will carry on after Christ's task on earth is done. Men specifically chosen to this. And it's at this point, with this prayer being the dividing mark, that the next phase of Jesus' ministry begins. And look at the men whom he chooses. These are not necessarily the kind of men that you and I would choose. That's for sure. He doesn't choose the academics, the rabbis, the teachers of the law. He chooses fishermen. You can see that's Simon, who was the one whom he called from being a fisherman. And he says, you will catch, come with me, follow me, and I will teach you how to catch men. So he chooses fishermen here in chapter 6. He chooses Matthew, whom another gospel tells us is the other name for Levi, that former tax collector. Tax collectors were considered enforcers of the Roman Empire. They were reminders of Roman oppression, and they took your stuff. They were often corrupt, and they were hated by all. He chooses a man named Simon the Zealot. You want conflict? A zealot is as far away from a tax collector as you could get. Zealots were the ones who arranged for accidents to happen to men like Matthew. Zealots were eventually the political group that worked to overthrow the Roman government. They led a rebellion. And then he chooses Judas Iscariot, a man whom he knows will betray him. Even this man will have a task used in the advancement of the kingdom. It was these men that Christ chose to be his apostles. It was these men who were the answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ in preserving his church. The answer to the work of Jesus Christ who works to preserve his church. These men that Christ chose to be his apostles, his sent out ones, his ambassadors speaking to a heavenly kingdom. These men are the result of these prayers as he enters this new phase of ministry, preparing his people to face oppression and opposition. Not the ones you'd expect, but the ones that have been called. Men like you and me. Everyday men. Men who have many differences, but who have one thing in common. They have Jesus Christ. And even in the face of their personal divisions and their their rivalry that we see coming through later, for Christ, that was enough. Because it is Christ who brings these people together. And in him, 
In him, he will create a leadership that is prepared for opposition. It's the same Christ who unites all of us here today, even as different as we can be. You might not feel particularly important today, beloved. You might feel out of place in this crowd. But Christ teaches us today that in answer to his prayer and in the unifying of his people as he's gathering them together under a particular leadership as well, he teaches you and me today that he is the common denominator. It is he who breaks down divisions. And in him, you who confess his name belong. You share in the answer to his prayers, those prayers in the face of opposition and the kingdom work that will follow. And this brings us to our third point. The first act that Jesus does after his organized opposition begins is an interesting one, isn't it? Look at what we find there. It's not rage against his opponents. It's not to rile up the people against the religious leaders. What is his response? Verses 17 to 19, it's to heal. And then verses 20 and following, it's to preach. Christ's response to oppression is to show and to preach deliverance. To show and to preach the very thing that those who were in opposition to him did not understand. The things that those who were in opposition to him had used instead to place as a burden on the people. Christ begins to preach and show deliverance. And in this, his first action, Christ begins to model for his chosen apostles what the heart and soul of kingdom work is. These people whom he sees and loves need him. We read in Matthew 9 verse 33 how he's moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. We know of the love that motivates him in his work. And these people are vulnerable. They've lost their way. They've been under the teaching of people who add to their oppression with extra laws. People who are at this very moment gearing up and organizing to try bring down Jesus and anyone who's connected with him. And Jesus sees this and so begins to preach and carry out his work in earnest. These are vulnerable people coming from all over to him with their sins and their quarrels, with their political differences and their fears. And they're all coming to Jesus. And Jesus has compassion on them. It doesn't matter that some of them are Jews, some of them are Gentiles. It doesn't matter to him what their background is, what their divisions are, whether they're tax collectors or zealots. It doesn't matter to him. He has compassion on them. He heals them of their diseases. 
He releases those who are tormented by unclean spirits. Power goes out from him and he heals them all. And by his work, he grants them deliverance from oppression. From oppression to their illnesses and their diseases. From oppression to the unclean spirits that are tormenting. And then from oppression to the false teachings that they have been bound up in. Christ cares about us, loved ones, in Jesus Christ, in all our situations. When he sees us suffering and when he sees our need, he cares for us in our needs. But it doesn't just stop there with their immediate needs. He deals with his people in a much greater need, with their sin. And so he doesn't just heal, he preaches. Now we're going to look at this preaching more in depth next time, but in the meantime, see how his actions teach us. He addresses their immediate needs, but he uses them as a vehicle to address their greater need, their need for the coming of the kingdom of God in the world to deliver them from the oppression and slavery of sin. This healing is a picture of the fullness and of the freedom that his gospel message brings, and it's preparing them for the sacrifice that's going to be coming. Because the opposition that he faces now would ultimately end in the greatest sacrifice of all time the one that would truly deliver his people, the one that would firmly establish his people as members of that kingdom that he was proclaiming. What his enemies had meant for oppression, Christ would use as the ultimate deliverance from oppression. He would grant them deliverance from their greatest oppressor, sin and the devil. But first he was leading them to trust him. And to understand where his heart for them lay. And so Christ shows his consistency, even to today. In the face of opposition, he cares for his people in prayer. And he's opened the way for us to use the same avenue in prayer. Not just praying for them, however, he also equips his people and he appoints leaders to continue to provide care for them, drawing people from all different backgrounds to him to experience in him the one thing that they hold in common, deliverance in Christ from oppression. And then he preaches to them the message of the kingdom, of deliverance that no oppressor can take away, a deliverance from sin. A deliverance that is forever. And so, loved ones in Jesus Christ, begin today by using this avenue of prayer that Christ has bought. Give over your concerns in prayer. Look to Christ to equip you and learn from those whom he has placed over you. Seek unity not in what you hold in common, but in whom you hold in common. Jesus Christ. And then rejoice in the love and compassion that he shows. Rejoice in the deliverance that he grants to all whom he brings into his kingdom. Amen.